Hi, I'm Claire Mitchell, QC. Welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. I'm a lawyer who specialises in miscarriage of justice cases, and we're bringing you this podcast because we want to tell you about the women who were accused, prosecuted, convicted, and ultimately executed as witches in Scotland. I'm Zoe Vendatotsi, and I'm a writer who's always had an interest in the witches, and I feel that this dark mark against Scotland needs a reckoning. The campaign Witches of Scotland wants three things. Firstly, a pardon for all those convicted of witchcraft. Secondly, an apology for all those who were accused as witches. And finally, a national monument in recognition of all those who are affected by this terrible miscarriage of justice. Over the forthcoming weeks, we'll be talking to a whole host of experts about the history and the modern day connections to the witches of Scotland. Hello and welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. After a bit of a hiatus, because we are both working on different projects behind the scenes that we can't talk about just now, we are delighted to bring you episode 35, where we're going to be talking to psychotherapist Leanne Maitland about the psychological ramifications of the witch trials. But first, in the news, see, do you like what I did there? I'm trying to build on your... I like that. That's good. That's good. (laughs) What's been happening in the news, Claire? Funny you should ask, Zoe. What's been happening in the news? Well, a couple of things. First, Parliament is back. And that's exciting for us because it means the petition and engaging with the politicians as we have been doing behind the scenes over the past weeks and months is hopefully going to come to some sort of fruition. We're going to have an opportunity to debate the matter before the Justice Committee and we look forward to that. I don't know when that's going to be. The reason I say that is we came in right at the very, very end of the the numbers of petitions that are going to be considered. And usually what happens is when you put in a petition, they go off to various subcommittees and it can take quite a while because you don't know how long it will take for different subcommittees to come back. So unfortunately, it won't be as quick as I want, but I'm trying to be patient given that folk have waited 400, 500 years for this and I'm just keen to, to get it done in the next four or five weeks but it's not going to happen then (laughs) but it's good though so at least we know that sort of the wheels are turning on that one that hopefully we'll hear quite soon and another thing in our news is Claire you put out a tweet like I don't know maybe like about a month ago uh, just innocently just asking a question of the internet and what was that question Claire? I asked whether or not if there was a museum of witch hunts would people come to it? And I asked them to retweet it if the answer was yes. And we had a bit of a viral situation, Zoe. Yes, there's definitely an interest and an appetite for a museum. It was really interesting and we had lots and lots of people getting in touch with us. I mean, like we weren't necessarily suggesting in that question that we were going to be building a museum ourselves, but we were definitely really taken aback by how many people are so interested in it. And it does seem to be something that could be alongside or as well as a memorial, definitely. And there, people really, really want a museum for it. Well, it seems, I mean, I innocently tweeted, you know, would you like a museum? Not even indeed realising what the definition of a museum is, what you require for a museum. You can't, in my small mind, you just set up something, you open up the door, you call yourself a museum and you try and get things to do with, the witch hunts and you put them in it and that's enough. But of course, who would have thought? It's of course much, much more complicated than that. You have to have certain amounts of particular types of artifacts. You have to be certified, you have to be verified. And all these things are difficult to do. So it's not easy simply to set up a museum, particularly if there is a scarcity of actual artifacts from the time, you know, what what would people come and see? But there certainly is an appetite for exhibition a museum yes still there's the appetite for that but I think people will have to work away in the background trying to see whether or not there are enough artifacts verifiable artifacts that can be brought together to do that sort of thing but as you know Zoe we have been contacted by so many people and what we hope to have effectively is those experts that have gone in contact with us and expressed an interest in it trying to bring them together at some point so we can all speak together about it because 
as you know, there are just so many people that have thought this is a brilliant idea. I can yeah. lend my skills to this. How can I get involved? And the answer is, I suppose, in the first instance, we all try and get together and talk about it. So that's in the planning with us to try and get everyone together to have this conversation about where we go with it. And I think it's the natural next step. You know, we've said from the very beginning when we started the podcast that a big part of what we're doing with our campaign is is basically opening up the conversation so that people can educate themselves and learn from experts and know about this, what has happened in Scotland in the past and in fact across Europe and what is happening across the world now. So I think it's actually the the most natural next step that there would be some sort of a place where people can physically come and, you know, access archive materials maybe or speak to other people or, you know, see see what, what there can be found. But I think what you're saying is true, Claire, about there may be not being much in the way of items that you could display, you know, I mean, necessarily by the nature of it, it wasn't something that made something, it was something that took away something. Yeah. So, you know, there, I, I wouldn't want it to be a sort of a, you know, here are some torture devices. Like I'm not, I'm not really interested in that at all. I think that's kind of gross actually. Yeah. So I wouldn't want it to be that sort of thing. Or, you know, as we've discussed before, we wouldn't want it to be a, you know, and, and hear somebody dressed up as a witch cacklingly driving you around. It wouldn't be that kind of thing either. Yeah. So What's really, really good is that we know it's been done done and done well before. Yeah, and yeah. What was really nice, the Salem Witch Museum reached out to us to say, great, we support you. Let us know if we can do anything for you, if we can give you any advice and help. That's really, really nice to see that other museums are supportive of it. Yeah. And don't worry, Zoe, we will literally not be asking you to pick up bricks and mortar. You started this off, you know, yeah. a conversation. Hey, I've got some chat about witches. And before you know it, you're in your dungarees actually building a museum. I mean, my granddad was a stonemason, so there could be some genetic thing there. I mean, you know, to building. I would have to get a medium involved because he's been dead since I was nine. But, there, you know, there's there's room there to get some expert advice, maybe. I'm not sure. But anyway, anyway, so that's exciting. And I think watch this space because what's been really great about doing this campaign is there's just the public connection with it and how much people are interested and how many people from all sorts of different areas of life have been in touch with us to get involved in, you know, just their enthusiasm or they actually want to put money behind things or they want to get involved politically or it's been really fantastic. And we're doing all this not for ourselves, but so that people know about and remember and accept and understand what happened with the witch trials all those years ago. So it's really gratifying to know that people are definitely interested. Oh, may I say one more thing that I don't know even if so you and I have spoken about, oh. but a teacher tweeted uh, saying that she was teaching her students about the witch trials. Yeah. And, um, one of our other listeners, a friend of the podcast, cut us into an email from a teacher who was going to speak to her pupils about witch hunts in Scotland. And so there does appear to be people who are now speaking to their school children about witch hunts, which I think is, is absolutely brilliant. Also, a friend of mine who's a teacher got in touch this week to say that she had just been doing, I think she's an English teacher, so I think she must be doing Macbeth with one of her classes. And she spent a period talking to them about the background of the witch trials and things. And she was playing them bits from our podcast and the kids were really, really into it. So she was saying to me that she's keen to see if she can get us in to come and talk to her class. So I think there is there is a definite interest in that. And I think, you know, I mean, I've worked with teenagers for a long time. They love, quite rightly, to get behind a social cause. And also they love like horrifying stories. So I think this is a perfect intersection of, of historic fact and uh, modern day horror for them to be able to get really involved in it. So that's really good to hear because I think that's the most important thing for me. Yeah, brilliant. If there's any other teachers that are going to teach their kids about witches, witchcraft during the period of time that we're talking about, please do get in contact and let us know because it's great to know that young people are being taught this as well as old people like us, so you're teaching ourselves. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so we'll move on to our guest for today, if that's okay. And so our guest today, Leanne Maitland, is a psychotherapist. And one of the things that she mentioned to us was a book called Witches, Witch Hunting and Women by Silvia Federici. And we talk about sort of some of these issues you'll see, well, you'll listen, you'll hear 
in the episode where we're talking about this, about the, the role that women play and played in the issue of the accusations and so on, and that it was women accusing other women quite often. And we've said this before, but I just think it's worth saying again, that it's easy to, to think back on the witch trials as women just being quashed, like strong-willed women being quashed by the men of the time and, and you know, a very straightforward reading of that. But obviously, naturally, as anything is in history and in human interaction, it's much, much more complex than that. And we talk about that a little bit in the episode. And I, I just think it's really interesting. It's really fascinating to see that the same sort of things get played out, you know, and that we should be supporting each other and working with each other, particularly as women. If we recognise that there's an issue with a patriarchal structure, we should be working together rather than sort of, you know, working against each other. So I think that it's really interesting to discuss that and be aware of it. So um, I think that this is an interesting episode from that side of things, but also about the sort of the psychological echo that's come through through the generations. And Claire, there was something you'd mentioned to me before about that for a past guest. Yeah, I remember Karen of the Medicine Spoon Memorial was talking about what the current way that women interact with one another, how that must have been affected by the fact that women were pitted against women during these times, that you couldn't be friends with anyone because you'd be scared that you would be drawn into, they were accused of witchcraft, you'd be drawn into that. So women had to, you would imagine in these small villages, it would be safer for women during times where the uh, witch hunts were having their periods of satanic panic to keep their own counsel, to keep away from other women. So so that if another woman was brought in, she wouldn't say, oh yes, my friend, you know, was involved in the coven or whatever. Not because she wanted to, but because she was being tortured or because she was deleted. And I remember Karen talked about how that affects modern women. Would that affect modern women? And I was totally interested to hear in this particular episode the sort of professional view of how these things go through the generations. And Leanne also sent us a fantastic quote, which she found on Edinburgh University's website, and it's definitely worth repeating. Trauma, sometimes unacknowledged or unspoken, touches the lives of individuals, families, communities, and nations. Within this area of research, we examine loss and trauma across a range of contexts and life settings, both within and outside the experience of therapy, seeking to find ways to describe, represent, and give voice to that which is often unsayable. So I thought it was really apt, well, Leanne explains that she thought it was really, really apt that there's an acknowledgement that nations can be affected by trauma, that I suppose we are the nations, our individuals in it. If this terribly traumatic thing has happened in the past to so many of the people in our country, when we were a country the fifth of the size we are now, that happened to so many people, that that trauma not being acknowledged, not being spoken about, not being dealt with reverberates through the centuries. It's quite something to think about in that way. You and I both work in different areas, often with people that have suffered great trauma and then, you know, it comes out in different ways. I think that there's absolutely, there's there's so much truth in that. You know, you can't, can't have an enormous thing like that happen and then for it not to get passed down from generation to generation. Because even, you know, if like you were in a family and the mum of the family was was accused and then executed, then her children you know, and siblings, parents, whatever, then would then go on into the next generation carrying the pain of that, you know, and then for it to have sort of come and gone over those hundreds of years as well. It's not even like it was a one-time event that then that was it. You know, the fact that that's sort of the threat of that still carried over people. I think it's it would be no crazy sort of suggestion to say that we are still paying the price for that in Scotland. You know, that there would still be families that would be wouldn't necessarily know, but the echo of that has gone generation to generation to generation to generation. You know, it's it's horrifying. Even in a practical sense, families who had people who were accused of witchcraft and died, first of all, in Scotland, we've lost the people that never were because of mm-hmm. the, the women that were killed, young and old, people could have had families. These people were financially destabilised, the families of people, by losing a member of the community. All these things, that I often think in a very practical sense, I suppose, of, so you've lost the three or four women in your house, you are ostracised from society because no one wants to know you, 
you know, you're not going to be able to find jobs easily. You're not going to be able to live easily. Your next generation is going to be worse off than you mm-hmm. are because you aren't going to be able to help or pass anything on. What I'm saying is there could be poor people out there just now who could have been rich, even those very practical things. Yeah, and I think as well, you know, that sometimes we get some people that get in touch with us, never actually face to face or directly. It's always just, you know, just sort of snidiness on Twitter, really. But saying that, you know, oh, the past was the past and people were different then and, you know, you're overthinking it. And I think some people might argue that today, you know. But I did an event recently where I interviewed Maggie O'Farrell about her most recent book, Hamnet, which is about um, Shakespeare's son dying. And one of the things that she talked about was that we sort of look back at people in the past and say, well, they had loads of children. So one child dying, you know, it wasn't such a big deal to them. And, you know, and she was like, well, but of course, of course it was, you know, of course it was a big deal. You didn't have children and like pop them out like it was a factory. They were all people that you that you loved and you cared for and you went through a pregnancy and went through a difficult birth, possibly and all the rest of it. So I think that it's very easy to say, oh, the past was different and people were different then. But they, they won't have been any different really to us about how much you love people and, you know, you're fearful of people or, or whatever. So I think I think anybody that says, oh, this is silly, you're rewriting history or whatever, really kind of needs to think about that a little bit. Yes, customs would have been different in some ways, but, you know, people would have still been people. Absolutely. And would have grieved in the same way. We're actually trying to meet up with one of our experts online, hopefully soon, fingers crossed, to talk about that, to talk about the fact that people put history in a box and say, well, that's history. We're different now. And the answer is, no, we're not. We're no different. (laughs) We've got the same needs, desires, wants, feelings. It's only circumstances that change. So it'll be great to hopefully meet up and speak to him soon. Okay. Shall we, shall we let our expert tell us about all this now? We should. So, we should. Without any further ado, we'd like to welcome Leanne Maitland to the podcast. We are delighted to introduce our guest for today, who's a bit of a different change of tact for us, I think, in some ways, and is going back to some issues that we've talked about here and there over the last episodes. But our guest today actually got in touch with us through our Facebook page and had some interesting stuff to talk about that we thought would definitely make a really great podcast episode. So without any further ado, I would like to introduce to the podcast, Leanne Maitland. Hello, Leanne. Hello, Zoe. Hi, Claire. Thank you for having me. Not at all. We're absolutely delighted to have you with us today. Leanne, can you tell us a wee bit about what you do? Yes, of course. So I run a private counselling and psychotherapy practice, uh, which I've been doing for around 10 years or so. And I work only with adults, not with children. And I work with individuals, I work with couples, and I also work with groups as well. So I've worked a lot with survivors of trauma, um, which is really Uh, I suppose, the link in terms of why I contacted you. Uh, So kind of in in this day and age, really with victims of domestic and sexual violence, uh, and also quite a lot with people who have been in the military or the emergency services and things like that as well. So it's probably worth me just mentioning in, in, in that sense that I'm trained in something called sensory motor psychotherapy, which is a neurobiological way of working with clients based on the current understanding of how our nervous systems respond to kind of stress and trauma and things like that, which I can expand a little bit more on later on, if that would be helpful. Yeah, and I also do something called systemic constellations, which is a relatively new approach and and not that commonly sort of heard of, which works with difficult life issues and takes what is called the widest possible view and looks at what has happened in previous generations as a means of understanding struggles in in the current day. So basically what it does is it it addresses the the long-term implications, easily going back many generations, of trauma, intergenerational trauma within either one family line, but also historical trauma, which is much more of a kind of collective consideration. So I hope that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely does. I mean, we've said this before, but I think the work that Claire and I both do, we both see, I think, the ramifications of intergenerational trauma. You know, it's it's really clear to see, I think, in particular uh, professional spheres. Yeah, 
I was interested, uh, Leanne, before we get on to talk about why you contacted us, and I think people will already, when we start talking about trauma and historical trauma, be starting to understand where the link is. But you, you talked about biological, what was the phrase you used? Neurobiological, I think I did, yeah. yeah. Can, can you explain a bit what that is? Yeah, so um, it's really the, the interface between our minds and our bodies. So uh, how trauma affects our minds uh, and our kind of psychological well-being, but also how it affects our bodies. So our nervous systems are quite complex. And, um, you know, the, the way in which our, our kind of bodies respond to trauma can be incredibly challenging to overcome unless you kind of have uh, an understanding of how that works, the link between the two, and unless you know how, how to. And it's, uh, you know, it's an area which I think would be incredibly useful if we could have much, much more knowledge of in, in all spheres, you know, whether, as you mentioned, I can completely understand, given what both of you do, how, you know, an understanding of that type of thing could be very powerful. It always seems to me a very, very strange idea that the mind is somehow separate from the body. That's the way we do treat them. We treat yeah. our minds like a completely separate entity when it is actually a physical part of our body and affects our body. So I find that hugely fascinating that that's developing in that way because I really think it's the right way to go. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in a way, that's a, um, perhaps a product of patriarchy in some way, shape or form. So sort of mind, body, spirit, and certainly in other cultures, as I'm sure many people who are listening are aware, um, actually aren't separate at all. But in the West, the way in which medicine developed is that it actually separated the two. Um, but you, you can't separate the two because, as you say, we, you know, we, are, we are our minds, we are our bodies. That's fascinating. I, I hadn't, suppose I hadn't thought about it that way before. Other cultures do treat it in a more holistic sense. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's, that's really interesting. So tell us what prompted you then to put, I was going to say pen to paper, but fingertip to keyboard <laughs> and, and contact yeah. us. Well, I suppose coming across your podcast was so fascinating for me because I had a, a fairly long-standing interest in the witches. And that goes back to probably about 2014, when I was still living in London where I lived for quite some time and a couple of things happened. So I had a series of dreams and I know that might sound quite random but I had a series of dreams about witches and I don't know if you know much about dream work but we dream in metaphor. So I kind of started to get quite curious about why sort of three or four dreams all of, along a similar line were, were coming up for me. And at the same time, I was having a conversation with my supervisor at the time, who was encouraging me to think about bringing in some of my beliefs around spirituality and soulfulness. And when I say spiritual, spirituality, I'm not talking about religion. What I'm talking about is a belief that I've come to, to hold both personally and professionally in a sense of something greater than any of us really understand. And so I was quite hesitant to bring that into my work, even though it was quite a strong belief. And I jokingly said to my supervisor when, when he asked me why that was the case, perhaps I was a witch and you know, perhaps I was killed for doing so. And of course, knowing what I know now, I would never joke about something like that. Um, and having learned much more about the history of the witches and the fact that actually they were just women, etc. But it stayed with me, to be honest. And I got quite curious about it. And when I moved back to Scotland, because I'm from here originally, but I'd been away from Scotland for about 17 years or so, I had a, I had a bit of time on my, on my hands because I was ill at the time, actually. Um, I think I mentioned to you both before we began that I had cancer. So I was having surgery and treatment and I had a bit of time on my hands and I started doing some research in, into the witches. Realized that my husband and I had inadvertently moved to what is known as the witchcraft capital of Scotland because we live in East Lothian. And yeah, I started to do a bit more reading and then eventually came across your podcast more recently. And 
the more I listened, the more I literally was talking to the two of you while I was, uh, you know, on my dog walks, listening to the podcast saying, oh, but, you know, what about this and what about that? And I just started to put two and two together in terms of trauma and intergenerational trauma um, and couldn't not contact you. And I suppose that's how it came about. Well, I'm so glad that we find that we're not only talking to ourselves, Zoe, but other people are talking to us when they're walking about as well. First of all, that's that's reassuring. Secondly, that's so interesting. I think when you speak about people saying, oh, maybe I was a witch, so many people have spoken about saying that before. And in fact, we had Alice Tarbutt on, didn't we, earlier, mm-hmm. Zoe, who joked to her boss, I think it was, or a work colleague, maybe I'm a witch. And then that stuck with her as well. And her whole idea of how she viewed the world changed. Sometimes I think that looking back at history has an effect on us, even before we know what that history is. And maybe maybe that is part of what really you're going to talk to us about. So you've got the interest, as you've told us, you've got your job and you've got the interest in witches. Where in the Venn diagram do they combine? What is it that you want to talk to us about that you think the two areas overlap and combine? So it's really in terms of the intergenerational effects of trauma. So they are, they're multidimensional. So they are psychological, uh, they run in families, uh, they have social, they have cultural implications as well as the implications for the individual from a body and mind perspective as as I touched on and so I think it's really helpful to consider trauma in the context of the witchcraft years and how from an intergenerational perspective that may have been passed down the line both within families but actually more collectively as well from an intergenerational perspective so that we can perhaps look with a slightly different perspective on some of the things that people struggle with today. It's probably worth saying it's it's a, a hypothesis in a way. And I hesitate to say that, uh, having listened to all of the podcast episodes now and completely kind of agree with the focus on facts and evidence, you know, and, and what we know for sure in the records, And by the same token, to my knowledge, I don't think there's been any in-depth studies into the long-term implications of trauma, certainly in relation to the witchcraft years. There have been long-term studies into the implications of trauma in other countries and other cultures. So things like um, Holocaust survivors and what's going on in, say, the grandchildren's generation and so on. So it's a bit of a hypothesis, but I think it's safe to say that it's an informed one based on what other countries and other cultures have done. And so what you're saying to us is that at the time of the witchcraft trials, and it's something that I've spoken about, or we've all spoken about, is that for a period of almost 200 years, but particularly for four hotspots, there was a time in Scotland where fear swept the country. And particularly if you were a woman, because an allegation of witchcraft would likely find you in a very, very difficult situation. And there was little you could do once that allegation was made to stop yourself being placed in a situation where you would be tried as a witch. And of course, the the great fear and danger of you being executed as a witch. So over that 200 year period, there was a sense of fear. There must have been a sense of fear in the country and and more particularly, more likely to be the woman in the country who would be scared of those accusations. There would be also those to whom the worst had happened and who had been accused of being a witch. Their family would still be left. They would see that. They would have to live with the consequences of that, live with people knowing that their relative was a witch, how society dealt with them. Is that the trauma you're talking about? And what we're now doing is extrapolating out to the modern day to see if that trauma then has any effect on the modern Scottish woman. Yes. And also the other way to look at it is that for the survivors of people who would have been traumatized in in those days. So, uh, you know, if you think about if you were a witch and you were accused but not convicted, then that would have been incredibly traumatic, particularly for those that may have been tortured, etc. But also if you were convicted and you were killed, then that would have left family and friends and people who loved you. And therefore the trauma becomes theirs as well as it being a trauma of of the the, the convicted witch. 
And so those people somehow had to piece their lives together and figure out, you know, how to, how to move forward. And one of the things that we know about trauma is that it's incredibly difficult to do that in a healthy way. So um, some of the, the ways in which trauma shows up, for example, I talked about the neurobiological or the kind of body-mind link. Trauma by its very nature is, is a powerlessness. And as we've said, it's, it's both psychological and it's physical. And from a physical perspective, survivors essentially have um, symptoms rather than memories. Um, and that includes uh, survivors of, of you know, friends and families and, and, and so on as well. So the human mind is really clever. What it essentially does is it splits off conscious awareness of that which is too horrific to be remembered. And the, but the body remembers in a different way. So it's like an imprint of the past. So with those people who are perhaps trying to move on, they might not necessarily think about what had happened, but actually they would be having symptoms. They, they couldn't not be having symptoms with something so horrific and so traumatic as, as you know, what happened during those years. And how that shows up is in one of two ways usually. Uh, the terminology that we use in this field is around either hypo arousal of the nervous system or hyper arousal of the nervous system. And hypo is things like depression, numbing out, sleeping all the time, being very passive, not having any feelings and actually being quite shut down and quite unavailable. Whereas the hyper arousal, it's much more about emotional overwhelm, panic, anger, and hypervigilance and being kind of quite reactive and things like that. You know, and, and arguably trauma runs through all of our lives. In fact, there's a brilliant book called The Trauma of Everyday Life by an author I think called Mark Epstein. And when I read his book, it really made sense of a lot of things for me. But of course, we're talking about degrees of trauma. And it's when these symptoms become debilitating that you know, we, we really need to pay a lot of attention to them and, and, and help people um, with, with them. And so that they're not, they're, they're not kind of hijacking their lives. Sure. So people's lives really are affected in such a way that they have no quality of life as a result of yeah. being unable to process or move beyond trauma. Uh, absolutely. And, and of course, the things that, that go with those kinds of symptoms are also around shame, around kind of worthlessness, often chronic pain. You often see quite a lot of substance abuse, very self-destructive type of behaviors and a general feeling that the world isn't really a safe place. So if you have been suffering from trauma, then you live in a, in a place of high alert. And, and I think that's probably one of the most important kind of ways to, to explain it. Unresolved trauma is basically the biggest threat there is to our physical health. It affects the brain, it affects the major organs of the body, and it affects the ability of, of our immune system to do its job as well. So, you know, when you think about the scale of that, which was huge, and then, you know, many of, many of the people who were involved in the witchcraft trials in some way, shape or form would have had children and spices and siblings and friends who were all affected by it and who all either had children of their own or perhaps who went on to have children. And trauma inevitably affects the way that people parent as well. And that's how it gets passed down the line. So that's so interesting because we've, we've spoken so many times about the fact that at the time, Scotland was a very small country, much, much smaller than it is now. There was only about 1 million people. And there were 4,000 people accused, 2,500 people killed, all those are very approximate figures. But when we look beyond the numbers of people that were actually personally affected by it, uh, i.e. the accused themselves, we see at least attached to them probably, what, four, five immediate members of family. We see how many people were involved. And I think Julian Goodyear spoke to us about the fact that it took 100 people to be involved in convicting a witch. So all the people that would have been involved in the process as well, there would have been no doubt people that did believe that someone was a witch and did believe therefore that they had to die, but, but, but there would still be 
traumatised by it, you know, churchgoers, those sorts of things. So I don't think it would be as easy as simply assuming that the only people that were upset by it would be the people that were accused and their family. There would have been a lot more people in the infrastructure. Obviously, they wouldn't be suffering presumably the same trauma, but certainly might be affected by it too. Absolutely. And, and I think particularly in those communities where there were a large number of accusations and convictions that's really quite frightening when you start to think about you know the fact that it could have affected the entire community in that way. Absolutely so where does that bring us given the fact that because we now no longer know who is related to those people I, I suppose in the modern day Scotland we don't have any any way of testing that inherited trauma other than as a as a very broad generality would that be right? Yes. I mean, you know, some people may have traced ancestry back, right? You know, there's been a real surge in interest in that in, in recent years, hasn't there? Yeah. Um, so, you know, and some people may may feel that this resonates and somehow that they've just got a, a sense that that may well have been the case. But it's when you start to think about what um, some of the, the long-term implications are that, you know, so so the fam down the family line is is one thing, and obviously, you know, we know that there are. It was only we're thinking the news again last week in terms of the real huge challenge that we have in Scotland in terms of our substance abuse. Uh, I think one of the biggest problems in Europe, and I find that absolutely fascinating. Obviously, you know, you can't make some sort of direct link to to trauma but I suspect that if it was looked at from a trauma perspective that actually we would start to see root causes which perhaps have never been addressed. That's so interesting because you know we can't I mean we, we could just keep trundling along not really dealing with this this issue properly but we really need to as a civilized society think about what are we going to do about it you know what are we going to do about the children of people that are that are drug addicts or even the grandchildren of people that are drug addicts that you know are then looked after by other people or they're still in their parents care and it's it's a chaotic and difficult lifestyle and you know what are we going to do about that how are we going to actually help people and I think we've got such a sort of an antipathy towards self-reflection in, in Britain generally but I think in Scotland we're really quite sort of it's changing I think but we're really quite sort of anti-therapy you know it's oh, it's not you know just tough it out, just, you know, just get your act together. And I think there's a lot of talk about, oh, you know, it's okay to not be okay, but I'm not sure what the next step is beyond those kind of platitudes and memes and, you know, the, the odd bit here and there. And I think it's so interesting what you're saying about looking at what the, you know, it could be several generations back, you know, it's, it's horrifying. Yeah. What I was thinking of there was, when you were speaking, Zoe, was that we have within us the belief that in order to deal with the present world, we should go back and have a reckoning with the past. I wonder if that's some kind of verbal way of expressing the fact that that trauma wasn't dealt with then, and therefore we should do something about it now. It's about acknowledging what was done to those people so as a society we can move forward with it. And I wonder if that's somehow some kind of expression of the view that if you don't deal with trauma, it will still be there. Does that make sense to anybody? It absolutely does. Yeah, it absolutely does. It's the same thing, I think. And we've been saying that from the beginning of doing the podcast, which is that, that you know, that phrase, you have to you have to make a reckoning with the past, you know, in, in order to be able to move forward kind of clear, clearly. You know, I, I do think it's really important. Do you see, you know, this is maybe far too big a question to ask you, Leanne, but do you see a sort of a route towards understanding that and treating that and thinking about it and, and moving, moving forward healthily? So what I would love to see is for trauma to be at the centre of policy. So social policy, educational policy, uh, because... It's going back to what we said earlier about the trauma of everyday life. And, you know, it, it's only relatively recently, if you take somewhere like uh, the emergency services, for example, that it is understood that what those wonderful people in our emergency services do is traumatic. And there is now really great support in place in that respect. But actually, that's very, very recent. And so I think if we could start to think about actually the nature of being human 
is very challenging and it be central to policies in that respect how we go about doing that I don't know I haven't you know I haven't even started to think about what that might look like yet and maybe it's not my job to do that uh, you know I'm just one counsellor one psychotherapist and it is a huge question but it's one that well I, I need to sit with actually you know and, and think about from a more systemic perspective. You said at the outset that, that what you've got I suppose is a theory as opposed to fact it's, a, it's an idea that you've got about the trauma that put in a nutshell is it your position that the trauma suffered at that time will have had some effect on generations past, even living now? Yes, I would say that it can't not have. Wow. So when you think of the numbers that were involved and you think about, you know, the, the, the children in those days that went on to have children that went on to have children and so on unless you have the know-how to treat trauma, which of course they couldn't have done because the study of trauma is actually very recent, sort of late 19th century, and certainly working with it in a neurobiological way in terms of the body-mind way is even more recent than that, really in the last number of decades, then it couldn't not have been passed down the generations. And so in some way, shape or form, I suppose what I'm saying is that we're all touched by it can't not be you know and I know that's quite a huge statement <laughs> it's a huge statement in one way but a statement so many of us feel in another we sort of feel I feel it um, very much in relation to justice that we should get justice for these people but it's still a feeling it's still a feeling that those people that were about hundreds of years ago are still of relevance to the modern day and deserve uh, a reckoning and deserve justice so it doesn't sound crazy to me at all because I feel I feel that way about it. I hadn't considered it as a, I suppose a an inherited trauma, as it were. Mm -hmm. But I feel strongly that things should be put right, and I suppose that's part of me recognizing that it means something in the modern day to a modern person. Yeah, and I think when when you think about it in a familial perspective, what happens is that familial relations they become tainted with trauma where the types of symptoms that I was talking about earlier become the norm. So the deep-seated shame, the feeling of powerlessness, the feeling hopeless, the hypervigilance, inexplicable fear, you know, all of that kind of thing. That shows up in my office and in the office of yeah. counsellor and psychotherapist, you know, in the country. And in, yeah. and in school, you know, like I work with a, a lot of young people who then have, you know, say, impulsive aggressive behavior or they can't focus in class and then they some of them then end up dropping out of education yeah. and some of them end up then in front of Claire because some of them end up breaking laws and getting in with groups of other like-minded people that are all suffering these kind of traumas I mean, we yeah. had training a couple of years ago in school about being trauma informed and you have an instinctive interest I think towards that as a as a teacher like you can instinctively tell if you're a good and compassionate teacher I'm quite harsh about this because I'm I, I think it's really important that compassion is like the most important thing you do with teaching not that I always get that right but I do think it's super important but you have an instinctual feeling towards that and for me that's the relationship side of it's the most important part of teaching is is understanding your kids and getting them on side and you can just see it happening over and over and over again and I don't think our education system is fit for purpose because it isn't actually trauma informed. It's it's getting it's getting I'm going to I'm going to go off on one again. It's about it's about getting children ready to be workers. It's yeah. actually not really about the joy of knowledge anymore. And it's not about them being whole people. It's about them behaving, getting an assessment, passing an assessment, going to college, being a worker like and I, I think that it doesn't work. Like we can see that it doesn't work properly. And we see so many young people that have really been, they've really suffered. And it's because their adult hasn't been able to look after them properly or, you know, is, needs help in some way. And I think that that's something that it would be very interesting. And there's no, I suppose there's no real way of knowing this, but it'd be very interesting to see if Scotland's psyche overall has been massively damaged by the witch hunts, you know, and that is why Scotland has an issue or partially why Scotland has an issue with drugs and alcohol 
you know, with criminality, you know, with with these different sort of social issues. I'd love. I don't know how you would you would prove that hypothesis. I'm not sure what you would have to do. Well, I think what might be needed, and I'm not putting my hand up for this yet. It's something no, it's a big I'm, job. <laughs> something I'm, I'm something I'm sitting with, but actually, what I think might be needed is an academic study, a thesis or a PhD into tracking, insofar as we can, the intergenerational implications of some of the witches who were accused. And and I know from from some of the social media pages and things um, that some people have traced their families back. And obviously it would be a very sensitive job Mm -hmm. as well. It's less apparent that I think in Scotland than it, it is in, say, Salem in Massachusetts. They've got much clearer records and lots and lots of people there seem to have traced their way back. But I think in Scotland, it's more nebulous, yeah. isn't it, Claire? Well, the reason at the time that we've still got all the records in Salem was because almost immediately after they were convicted and they were sentenced, within weeks, months, years, it was already recognised that that had been a terrible thing that had happened and a miscarriage of justice to them. Whereas mm. Scotland, the shame that you've described, Leanne, already, the shame that these people had to live with, meant that people wanted to be as far away from being connected with the person that had been convicted of witchcraft. And because we never reckoned with it at the time, those links got lost. So if your grandma's grandma had been a person convicted as a witch, you wouldn't be saying to your grandchild, oh, you know, my grandma, your great-great-grandma was killed as a witch. It would be a shameful thing that wouldn't be talked about. Whereas Mm. in uh, Salem, Massachusetts, they have owned the miscarriage of justice and therefore they treat it as not a matter of pride, but a matter of remembrance that they are descended from those people. And we don't don't have that at all. That was... One area where this might intersect, though, I'm just thinking, is the study that we're on the steering group for, the Nurses and Midwifery study um, with the College of Nurses, um, because these are kind of a Venn diagram where those things may overlap a little bit. I wonder what they'll come up with with their research and and if they're able to find descendants, because part of their thing, isn't it, Claire, is that they're looking into you know women that were were accused or were um, executed as witches that were healers, you know, the early sort of version of a a nurse or a doctor. So that might be quite interesting from that point of view. Perhaps. I mean, their their focus very much is on telling the story of those women and not later in history. But yes, no, you're absolutely right. Might sort of track them back a little bit, though, as as some people to to sort of, I don't know, to see where where they went. Yeah. Now, one thing when, Leanne, you got in touch with us that you mentioned that I want to ask you about is... You said that you always think about King James the Sixth when you think about developmental <laughs> trauma. Can you tell us about that? Yes, of course. So developmental trauma really is building on, on what I said earlier about trauma affects the way that someone parents. So if someone's had a traumatic experience and they're, they're, they're suffering from some of the symptoms that we talked about, then of course that is going to impact the, the way in, in which they parent. And... King James VI is a really interesting, he just, he has come into my mind so many times over the last few years as I've been thinking about the witches. Developmental trauma is if you're a child uh, of someone who is traumatized and who is unavailable, uh, either because you're not present or because you're struggling with symptoms of trauma to parent in the attuned way that we know now that parents need to be in order to give children the security in order to for the brain to to develop in in the normal way king james was what uh, i think around eight months old when his father was murdered and then 18 months old or so when his mother mary queen of scots was defeated and then forced to abdicate the throne in his favor and then my i'm no historian but my understanding was that he was then brought up by a series of misogynist Protestant guardians, um, given what was happening in Scotland at the time. And if that is not developmental trauma, then I don't know what is. So, you know, he loses his mother and his father within the first 18 months of his life, and he's brought up by a bunch of, yeah, misogynist Protestant guardians. And so I wonder whether he 
was really influential in, in terms of the, the witches because he was traumatized. And it was something that, was it Rachel Christ who was on from the Salem Witchcraft Museum? It was something that she said that really kind of crystallized it for me. She said something about fear plus a trigger equals a scapegoat. And of course, what we know in terms of trauma symptoms is that hypervigilance and paranoia, for example, are things that are very much at play for people who are in that place of the hyper arousal that I talked about earlier. And so if you think about the example with King James, when he was trying to bring his wife over from Denmark and the North Berwick witches ended up being accused of creating weather storms and things like that, I'd argue that he was traumatized from birth and that that fear plus a trigger equals a scapegoat was his trauma response, highly, highly paranoid, highly, highly vigilant. And as a result, quite maverick in terms of how quickly he jumps to conclusions, very impulsive. And of course, as we know, the implications of that were just horrendous. My goodness, so the, the idea is that this young king left without his parents, brought up by men who were deeply involved in the church at that time, which did not look favorably on women, they obviously had an influence on on him in that sort of sense on on his beliefs but the reason why he grasped it so strongly and held on to it was that it almost solved the problem for him or it, it made sense of his world to think that this is the reason for it these are the, the problems and gave a narrative to him that he understood in order to that understand the world that he lived in that would be my trauma-informed guess, yes, because it is easier to jump to conclusions and be hypervigilant than it is to deal with the symptoms of trauma. I was going to say there about when I said about the church, I don't imagine any churches at that time, be the Protestant or Catholic or Episcopalian, none of them were really women friendly in the sense of the idea of equality or anything of that nature. So I don't think it was it wasn't their, their Protestantness that did that. I think all the churches were in that way, in the modern way that we would yeah. Held very uh, misogynistic views, so he held that belief perhaps so strongly because it was a way to understand his world. And in that way, he, well, he became unquestionable on it, didn't he? I mean, he literally wrote the book. That was how much he believed it. Yeah, we understand. And and again, we should just have a a, a thing at the start of everything to say: Zoe, Claire, and our guests aren't historian experts, unless of course they are. Unless they are, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we understand later in life he moved away from the idea of witchcraft he didn't hold those beliefs as strongly and maybe that was him coming to terms with something or becoming older obviously I'm wildly speculating here but it's interesting that and um, for so many years he held those ideas so strongly and then he seemed to take a step back or, or view the world in a different way slightly. I don't think he ever went into saying, oh no, this has all been a terrible mistake, nothing like that, but it just wasn't at the forefront of his beliefs or the forefront of his thoughts later in life. Mm, I wonder if that's because there was no risk at that point of it all being taken away from him because he had the perspective of having done it, if that makes sense. Ah, mm. So the problem yeah. solved, the risk, the risk had gone. What a fascinating... Yeah. Well, obviously i am speculating but it's yeah. you know <laughs> we, we are we are it's speculation is theory but it's as you see when you're talking about trauma you're in, it's informed whereas when zoe and i are talking it's highly uninformed now come on claire there are some areas we're informed <laughs> but i should say in law at the moment there is also a move in respect of trauma to make people aware of the effect of childhood trauma and offending. And there are groups of trauma-aware lawyers who are trying to make lawyers in Scotland know more about trauma. And there's quite a lot of continuing professional development being done in that regard. And we're talking a lot more about adverse childhood experience and how that affects people. At the moment, I suppose, it would be fair to say that a court or people can understand if you had a very 
bad upbringing you had lots of trauma in your upbringing that that caused it to be bad that that might affect you as an adult what is more interesting and I suppose more difficult for people to grasp is that that trauma can come from further back down the generations and affect you but I suppose Mm. in in one way if your great-grandparents had very unstable lives and they passed on their unstable lives to your grandparents who passed them on to their parents who passed them on to the child, that really is what we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, cumulative trauma. Cumulative Mm -hmm. trauma. And in, in a way, you know, it's everything. And in a way, it doesn't matter either because what we're dealing with is the present day presentation of it. Um, and, yeah. and what we do about that is the thing that matters. Yeah, dealing, we're, we're dealing with here now. And I suppose in that way, in the same sense, that theory has the same effect in relation to the witches in that we're, we're dealing with the here and now. We can't help, even if we were finding someone who was related to a person, we can't help them in that sense of affecting what happened to their ancestor to help them now. But... But what we can do is go back as a society, I think, and look at what happened to people then and say that that was wrong and say that that shouldn't happen again. And Zoe and I talked very recently about the idea that our national memorial should be, or included as part of a national memorial, should be a museum of the witchcraft trials so people can learn about the history in Scotland. Do you think that might be a good thing for people to, to know about their history? I think it would be an absolutely fantastic thing. When I first heard you say that on on one of the previous episodes, it just really felt to me perhaps more fitting than a monument of some sort. A mon- you know, a monument is a kind of great stake in the ground, isn't it? But actually, a museum is so much more. It's educational. You know, it's a way to pay respects. Um, it's it's so much more, and perhaps you know can really inform people about some of this stuff as well. I think in Salem, you'll have heard the the episode you you referred to earlier. That's really what they try and do. The emphasis is on education and understanding as opposed to come to our gift shop and buy a pointy hat, which is the very antithesis of what you would want. I'm so glad you got in contact with us, Leanne. I am finding this fascinating. Is there anything else you want to touch on or to ask about any areas that we haven't discussed with you that you think you would like to see? I think probably the only thing is just to touch a little bit on what I referred to as kind of collective trauma rather than that which is passed down the families. Collective trauma is something which is kind of aimed at a particular group of people because of their status as an oppressed group. And as we know, largely that was women um, in terms of the witches. And trauma breeds fear, and that fear gets ingrained in us uh, in a a way which, again, gets passed down generation after generation. And I think that shows up in a variety of ways in the modern day that it's helpful maybe just to touch on a little bit. So the fear of being different, uh, and that, that can show up in so many ways, whether it's in gender identity, sexuality, you know, how we dress, religious or spiritual preferences and and so on. Also in what I call internalized patriarchy. So you've talked quite a lot. And of course we hear in the media all the time about how women are treated by men. And I'm very conscious of my kind of gender binary specific language here. But of course that needs to be an ongoing conversation. And we've come a, a long way in the name of feminism, but we also need to consider how we treat ourselves, you know, as, as women. So I work a lot with women on a one-to-one basis and in groups. And what comes up again and again is this sense of internalized patriarchy. So how we treat ourselves, how we doubt ourselves, the, the fear of speaking out, the sense of not being good enough, embedded fears and beliefs, which kind of stem from when it wasn't safe to speak up. So I think that's very present still. Again, it shows up in my office all the time. And I have a number of friends and colleagues who, of course, do the same thing. uh, And we're all struck by it. So it's really about the limitations that we place on ourselves and what we do or don't do in the world as a result. How we sort of intuitively hold ourselves back and and often have a very deep rooted fear, even if it's subconscious that in some way we'll be 
annihilated if we if we speak out. And I think the other thing that's related to, to that, that collective trauma, is how women treat other women as well. So mistrust comes up a lot in my work, especially within groups of women. And I see it more so in terms of the kind of polarization of mothers and non-mothers. So you've talked quite a lot on the podcast about the women who were accused as witches who were unmarried. Uh, and my, my guess is that in those days, that probably also meant without children, much less so today, obviously, but in those days, that was probably likely to be the case. And certainly that's my situation. So having children didn't, didn't happen for me, even though it was something that I always hoped might. But I do a lot of work with women who are childless by circumstance, not by choice. And both on, on a one-to-one -one basis, but also in groups, because I, I freelance for, for an organisation that's called Gateway Women, which is a global friendship and support network for women who don't have children by circumstance. And what has become really fascinating to me is that on the programmes that we run, there is a, an exercise which looks at archetypes, which for, the, for if there's anyone listening who, who don't know what they are, they're essentially psychological patterns in the form of characters. So things like servant and master and uh, mentor and things like that, which have got both positive and negative aspects to them. And when we work with groups of childless women and we, we ask them to come up with examples of archetypes or roles or characters that they associate with an older childless woman, they very, very rarely come up with anything positive. It's always things like crazy cat lady, old hag, weirdo that lives in the woods, and of course, witch. And... Sadly, it seems to be something that we still struggle with today in, in our culture, that a woman isn't somehow normal if she doesn't have children, like it's not okay to not have children. And the women that, that we work with really struggle with shame in that respect, feeling like there's something wrong with them, like they didn't get something right in their lives. And so I have quite a strong suspicion that that is a legacy from the horrors of the times of the witches and, and what it meant to be different, of course, is part of a, a wider narrative around patriarchy and, and actually polarizing women into mother and non-mother are both forms of social control. So that's one that I think is certainly worth flagging. Again, fascinating as an older, should I call myself older yet? Are you? No. no. Okay. My hair is very white though. Does that give us <laughs> like that's like uh that's not older that's just like glamour oh yeah that's what it, that's not i'm not getting older i'm just getting more glamorous like marilyn monroe that's yeah, the main point oh yeah i'm so glad this is a podcast um <laughs> i don't have children by circumstance not really probably by choice probably you're child free rather than childless Yes, I suppose. I refer to people that don't have dogs in their family as being dogless people. That's... <laughs> <laughs> There's two... Well, i tell you something quite funny, actually, on that front. There's two Spaniels in this house. Um, and you started off by talking about whether or not, you know, many of the podcast guests that you've had on, whether or not they would have been accused as witches. Not only was am I female, I'm also childless. I also have a bit of a habit of speaking up about what I believe in, which gets me into trouble sometimes. And I've got a small black spaniel who I did not name. She was named by my husband's aunt before she died. And then when she died, we rehomed her. She's a bit naughty. She runs away quite a lot. And I am regularly standing in the middle of the East Lothian countryside shouting her name, which is magic. So... <laughs> oh, that's on all of those counts, for sure, I, I would have been, I'm sure, accused of witchcraft. <laughs> I mean, that, that absolutely is the, the, the modern day idea that all these women were, you know, the things that you've described. And, and in fact, as we know historically, unfortunately, it wasn't just limited to those women. It wasn't limited to any women. It was all women. But the, the way that we now interpret history is that if you are strong, if you stood up, I mean, I don't think being strong and standing up would have helped any. If you were outspoken, if you did challenge the social norms, that clearly would have put you into a different position. 
that's that's great. Long live you standing in the middle of the field shouting magic loudly to yourselves. We must get you a Witches of Scotland badge or something like that so you can be proudly wearing it as a <laughs> magic <laughs> Oh, it's been been great. This is really interesting and it's very thought thought provoking and I'm sure it'll give our listeners a lot to sort of ponder over. Um, and I imagine we'll have a lot of people getting in touch with actually when this podcast goes out about their own stories, probably. So thanks so much for joining us today, Leanne. It's been really brilliant. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's episode of the Witches of Scotland podcast. The website that Leanne has developed is www.innerwilderness.co.uk if you want to get in touch with Leanne and see the kind of work that she does. Um, It's a great website, so go and have a look at that. So it's been great having Leanne Maitland on this week. As ever, please do get in touch with us on our social media, on the socials. We're on Twitter. I don't know why I said that accent there. Um, On Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I'm going to mention TikTok, even though we haven't made any TikToks. And please do get in touch with us because it's always really great to hear from people and to know about all the different people that are doing lots of different interesting work about this issue around the world. Absolutely. And yet, although we haven't done any TikToks, I sadly have become addicted to TikTok and may have to actually delete it from my phone because I I shouldn't be addicted to TikTok. Well, there are worse things probably to be addicted to. (laughs) Well, that's very kind of you to say. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. so we'll be a, we'll be back in two weeks' time mm-hmm. with our next podcast, and we're back on track with our timings. Hopefully, to bring you uh, another uh, super podcast in two weeks' time. Okay, thanks so much for joining us. That See you later. That was professional. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs>